If you have your Bible with you this morning, would you turn with me to the book of First Peter? First Peter. It's toward the end of the New Testament. You get down there to First Peter, you're coming up on first and second, third John, Jude, and Revelation. First Peter chapter one. We're going to begin this morning a new uh, series of expositions through this wonderful historical letter. And it is our privilege to begin this with you today. We are so thankful for what we have just left out of in the book of Galatians. And I trust that you will forever be changed as a result of your interaction with those words so many years ago. And I am praying that the impact will be as good, if not better, if God is willing, in the book of First Peter. Now, don't expect me to go very far today. As you can see, we're just going to probably be thinking about the first two verses. And as a matter of fact, uh, we'll probably be there for a few Sundays. And you'll, you'll see why, I think. So First Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles... Of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for your holy inerrant, infallible word. We pray this morning that you will take these few words that we have read and that you inspired to be written, that you preserved through the centuries. And God, we pray that you now will give us illuminated eyes to see, unstopped ears to hear and softened hearts to receive these words. And God, we pray that you would give us understanding That that understanding would then give rise to an increased faith and trust in you. That 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 understanding of these words would give rise to strength and peace and patience and joy in our hearts. And God, we pray that you would so work in our hearts and lives through your word, by the power of your spirit that we would appropriately apply what we learn. God, we want it all to be for your glory. We want it all to be for your honor, for your praise. And we pray also to that end that you would strengthen your church. We pray that you will help us to grow in our understanding and grow in Biblical faithfulness of life and holiness and purity and righteous living. And we pray that that would have an impact by your spirit upon other people and other people and other people. God, we pray that you would be glorified. And we ask this in Jesus' name and amen. So as you can see, living as strangers and exiles in the world, living as strangers and exiles in the world. Let me come back to that 
title in just a minute. And let me give you a short introduction here about the time period of this writing and our time period today. In many ways, the time period of the writing of the Apostle Peter here and our day, very similar in some ways. The church had begun to spread out from Jerusalem. And as it spread, so did the persecution of the church spread. And as people were persecuted, it actually helped to push Christians out of the nest of Jerusalem, so to speak, and take the gospel where Jesus originally commanded them in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. So Christ intended for his church to take the true message from God concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, concerning God's grace to work and act on behalf of sinners to the world. (laughs) And they were a little slow about doing it, as we often are. And persecution came, and it seemed to be the means of grace in a way, very strange way to do it. They moved out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and on out into the known world that time. And not so much unlike our time, the Christians who were being faithful to Jesus Christ and consistent with his teaching, which is consistent with Old Testament prophecies and teachings as well, they were being persecuted for their faith. They were being persecuted because they were Christians and they were standing up for Christ and they were teaching and preaching that you cannot be saved apart from him. They would say things like what Jesus said to them. Jesus said to them, it's recorded there in the book of John, that he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. And so in a way for these Christians, they were living in desperate times, difficult times for them. And little did they know that that would only increase until Nero would come in and he would just lay waste to Jerusalem and the temple. And the Jewish way of life would be never the same, even up until this time. Well, my friends, we are living in desperate times as well. In some ways, we have so much light, so many means of communication, so many theological resources and ease of access. And yet, so many churches are nothing more than social clubs with a Christian vocabulary. Entertainment centers with Christian vocabulary. And so we live in desperate times. As Christians, we are experiencing the transition of our culture really before our very eyes. Many of you that are older in the room, you can testify to this better than us who may be more on the younger side. That we are actually experiencing a transition in front of our faces here as a culture. Some of the cultural Christianity of our time... And of the past is radically and rapidly changing. And some of it needed to change. Some of it needed to change. But some of it did not. 
And I'm thankful for the changes that God has led his church in, in our present day that is in realignment and in better alignment with biblical faithfulness than before. And we have to ask that question. Every generation has to ask that question. Are we personally and are we as local churches living, listen, as biblically faithful as we can? Or do we need to make some adjustments? Every generation must ask that question. Some of the changes are not so good in our culture. Secularism is on the rise and has been for some time. So is violence and abortion and theft and murder and poverty and welfare. They're on the rise. Idolatry and adultery and fornication and homosexuality, fatherless homes, alcohol and drug addiction are on the rise all over the country. And believe you me, even secular Politicians and thinkers are asking, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Pornography, self-consumed, unaffectionate mothers, emotionally, physically, mentally hurting children are on the rise. Greed, lies, hate, confusion are also on the rise. What is even more alarming to me, though, is that the evangelical church has in many ways drifted by and large into, ready for another bunch of adjectives, a consumer-driven, entertainment-minded, anti-doctrinal, lukewarm, physical, prosperity-loving, sensual, pleasure-seeking, me-centered, nominal group of people that are increasingly becoming biblically illiterate as they tell themselves increasingly that they are secure. I think that's a good assessment of a great portion of evangelical Christianity today. And that's more alarming to me because sinners are going to sin. (laughs) That's what we do. That's what we are. By nature and by choice, we are sinners. But when the church, when people who say and embrace the Bible to be the authoritative, inerrant, inspired Word of God, which many evangelicals would not say today, when they begin to shift in their allegiances and in their practices toward me-centered kinds of gatherings that are in, that are expected to entertain and to make me feel good about myself, we have a serious problem. Because if it's me-centered, it's not what? God-centered. And if it's designed to make me feel better about myself, then it misses the biblical Genesis to Revelation truth that people in and of themselves are not good. And we are in fact in need of a gracious work from God. The mercy of God. The love of God. The grace of God. Becomes so... Beautiful when we realize how ruined we really are. So we do live in desperate times and critical times. And what is the need of the day? What is the need of the hour? What do we need? What do we need? Well, the world needs the truth of the gospel. The world needs the truth 
from God concerning himself and his action in Christ to save sinners. And to transform sinners from being me-centered to being God-centered. The world needs the transformation of the power of the gospel. The power of the Holy Spirit. But you know what, my friends? How do people hear the gospel? Someone has to preach it to them. How do people pre, how do people hear the gospel? Someone must preach it to them. Someone must faithfully share the truth concerning Christ with them. And if the church is increasingly consumed with myself, then that cuts directly against that great commission that we've been given to take the gospel to the world. And so ultimately what we need is for God who made and sustains the world to finish his plan. Is that what you're looking forward to, Christian? What we need and what we should be looking forward to is for the God who made the world and the God who is sustaining the world and all of creation to finish his plan. And when we get to the end, what a day that will be. A day of universal peace and love and joy and pleasure that's pure and clean. That's what we're coming toward. You see, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I pray you hear me, is not waiting for political processes to get us where we need to go. The church is not waiting on political processes To get us where we need to go. We're waiting on the king of the universe to return. There's a big difference there. One of the markers that is so embarrassing about the church today. Is that we become frantic over political issues. But don't care about the discipleship of a brother or sister sitting beside of us in the church. What is so heartbreaking. Is that we'll, we'll be concerned with political processes getting civil society where it needs to go when we've been given marching orders to take the one thing, the truth of the message of Jesus Christ to the world, which has the power to transform lives. So when a person believes, embraces, and is born again and indwelt with the Spirit of God, beloved, this kind of stuff, let me go up there to the, to the top again. This kind of stuff takes, is taken care of. Violence and theft and murder and poverty and welfare and idolatry and adultery and fornication and homosexuality and fatherless homes and drug and alcohol addiction and pornography and self-consumed unaffectionate mothers emotionally, physically, mentally hurting children, greed, lies, hate and confusion. That stuff gets better when people are saved and born again and radically changed. Never confuse that. I'm not trying to tell you that you shouldn't be involved in the political processes. You're also a citizen of this country. We should pray for the prosperity. We should pray for the peace. We should pray for God to act through his church to have an impact that makes society a better place to live. We should never confuse that. We should never confuse our activities as citizens of the United States of America. We should never confuse that with our allegiance that we have ultimately to God and to his kingdom. 
And so we are waiting for the one to come. Who through his rule, the king of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah of God. When he returns to rule the world in true justice, true righteousness, true peace, true holy love. That's coming. That's coming. But until that glorious day, here's your question. How then shall we live? Until that day that we love to sing about what a day that will be. People wiping tears from their eyes, knowing how beautiful, how glorious. Just glimpses of that day move us to the core. Because we know it's coming. But until we get there, how then shall we live? Until that day, what the world needs is a church that is made up of regenerate, blood-bought men and women who are living by faith and in faithfulness to God in accordance with His divine revelation contained in the Holy Bible. That's what we need. That's what society needs. And it will be increasingly more difficult to do that. Do you believe that? How then shall we live? My friends, just like we learn from the book of Galatians, and some of you may read these old these books and you say, man, they're so old. How can we get anything out of them today? And then you read them and you study them and you think, man, that is so good for right now. And we're going to find the same exact thing with this book. The same exact thing. Because the Apostle Peter was writing to Christians just like you that are scattered out into the world. But this world is not our home. And we're strangers. And we're exiles in this world. And we're awaiting a future more glorious one to come. And he says, okay now, let me encourage you while you're still here as a stranger. And an exile in the world. So there are so many truths contained in this book. That give direction and definition to our Christian lives. Direction and definition. It's one of the things we lack. Why is the Christian church in America so nominal? Because we lack clarity of direction and definition from scripture. That's why. So many people today, if, if I were to ask you to, to define for me in the most precise terms that you have, what is the doctrine of atonement? How many of you can give an answer? We have no clarity of direction because we have no clarity of biblical doctrine. Because we're trying to muddy the waters and say, oh, we just need to do away with doctrine. Let's embrace one another. We all want to be included and include everybody. And when you do that, you lose precious, vital truth that is for the living of the church. Doctrine is for living. What you believe gives rise to what you do. Every time. So, with that said... (laughs) Let's think about who wrote this book. Who is writing and when? So let's shift now from that was introduction to number one. Who is writing and when? 
It's obvious who is writing. It's the first word that we read. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is the apostle Peter. Who is he? The name Peter was given to Simon by Jesus Christ early in the Lord's ministry. If you turn to the book of John, chapter 1 and verse 42, you'll find. Let's We'll look at a couple things to just see who we're hearing from here. And I think, you know, not only is the... The doctrinal content of the writing of First and Second Peter or Paul's 13 letters or the writer of the book of Hebrews. Not only is there doctrinal content there that's so beneficial and profitable for us. But did you know that even the characters themselves teach in their lives? And the apostle is, is one of those guys. <laughs> Sometimes we learn from him like from the book of Galatians what not to do. And sometimes... We learn from that very same man what to do in the way of his example. So John chapter 1 and verse 42 says that he brought him to Jesus, that is Simon. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. You should be called Peter. So there early on as he met this man, he changed his name. <laughs> and then, if you turn over to Matthew chapter 10, you'll see that, and, and I'm not going to share with you every one of the lists, but in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are several times when the names of the apostles, even in the book of Acts, that the na- a list of the names of the apostles are listed. And I do not think that it's a coincidence at all that at the head of every single one of those lists, every time it's listed, they are listed, his name is at the top. Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 to 4. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter. And there it is. Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee. And John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed, betrayed him. You're in Matthew 10. If you go to Matthew chapter 16, you find another significant occurrence in this man's life. And in the earthly ministry of Jesus, he asks his disciples, who who do people say that I am? And then in verse 16, so this is Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And here we have a wonderful passage that gives us insight into this man who was given this revelation from the Father of the true identity of Jesus of Nazareth to be the Messiah that God was sent into the world, the Savior, the Son of the living God. So it was the Apostle Peter who first made that correct, right confession of who Jesus really is. And the Lord says, I'm going to base my church on that. The right confession of who Christ is. So the people that recognize the true identity of Jesus of Nazareth to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, becomes a foundation for 
the church. And he's going to build the church upon this confession and upon this realization from the Father of who Jesus of Nazareth is. He says, going back to First Peter now, that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I believe everybody in here knows what that word means. I won't belabor it, but an apostle in a very general sense means someone who is sent on behalf of someone else. So you have, you can think of times where there were couriers who would be sent from one king over to another kingdom and to another king and he would, he would go as a representative with a message from his king to the other king, to the other nation, or to the subjects of within the, his own kingdom, he would send him out with this message, and he had no authority whatsoever to change the message, to modify the message. He was just sent with the message, and he was to give it exactly the way that it was given to him. That's sort of an idea of what an apostle is. Someone who is sent out from heaven's king on behalf of the king to tell the world a message from him, and we have no authority to change it, modify it, <laughs> edit it, in any way, but just faithfully proclaim it. However, as an apostle, there is a deeper idea than just a general someone sent from one king or from one person to another, from one nation to another as an ambassador, but someone who is given specific authority to establish Christian doctrine. It's someone that Jesus Christ personally appoints to establish true doctrine Within the local churches. The apostles were given that. Were given that responsibility. Turn to the book of Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. And in Mark chapter 3. We're going to see that Jesus in fact. Is the one who is choosing these apostles. So they they did have a committee. Uh, to to take a secret ballot vote. And get somebody in there. And who we're going to get in the apostleship here. How we're going to make the leadership of the church here in the first century flow and function. But actually Jesus himself, the Lord of heaven and earth, is the one who chooses them sovereignly and pointedly and gives them authority on his behalf. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Mark chapter 3, verse 13, down to verse 19. And he went up on the mountain and called to, the, to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve. Whom he named what? Apostles. So these twelve are apostles. The rest of the believers. The rest of the followers of Jesus at that time. Were not named apostles. So don't confuse the general definition with the specific. So in a very general sense. Every one of us as Christians. Paul says we're ambassadors for Christ. But in a very specific sense, there are 12 chosen and appointed apostles who are given authority by Jesus himself to act and speak on his behalf, even to the point of establishing Christian doctrine. It's as if when you get a letter from the apostle Peter or the apostle Paul or the apostle John, you are getting words that are sent from God to you. When you read those books even today, you're not necessarily hearing from a man who just decided to write some things down, but you are hearing from God. I can't speak that way to you unless I'm reading you from the book. They were given that authority. Listen to what it says. He, he appointed them, 
so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to have what? Authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve and then it gives the names again. And so this is the apostle Peter who is often called the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. (laughs) Why is he called that? Because he's always speaking up before he really gets things in order and he kind of has to retract a little bit. He's the one who would come to Jesus. Jesus says, guys, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be mistreated by the religious leaders. I'm going to be handed over to the Romans, Pilate, and I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be abused, and I'm going to be crucified and die, and I will rise three days later. And it is Simon Peter who comes and says, oh, no, you're not. Oh, no, you're not. You can't do that. What are you thinking? And he says, get behind me, Satan. Adversary is what he meant. You're becoming an adversary here, Mr. Simon. Open mouth, insert foot. And although we laugh about that, and it is a comical reality, I think the main reason that we laugh about it is because we can relate to him so well. Because we often open our mouths and we often act. I think about the cartoons that we used to watch, you know, when when they wanted to run from something, you know, they would jump up in the air and their feet would be running real fast. They wouldn't be going anywhere. We're often like that, you know. Or the old phrase, you know, we we throw up the gun and it's ready, fire, aim. You know, it's 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 out of sequence there a little bit and we often do that. And he is kind of a representative of that in Scripture. But you know what? He was an apostle. He was an apostle who was chosen to be not only an apostle, but one of the inner circle among the apostles. Whenever he would do something like, I'm going to go up to the mountain we call the mountain of transfiguration, where he displays a little bit of his glory to these men. He says, Peter, James, and John, y'all come with me. So that's who wrote the letter. When did he write it? Most likely the date for the... uh, the apostle writing this letter would be just before Nero's persecution, which followed the great fire that ravaged Rome in the summer of AD 64. So somewhere in that little area before the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, the great persecution by Nero and of those Christians because, and here's here's the reason we say that and most scholars believe that, because it seems so likely Concerning the content of this letter, if that had already happened, he would have mentioned it. Because so many Christians were violently persecuted during that time period. It was such a radical shift for Jewish people who were used to going to the temple that it would almost seem impossible, not totally, but it seems almost impossible that he would write this letter. And not mention that fact. Because as we're going to see. One of the major things that he talks about. Is their suffering well. To the glory of God. And for the advancement of the truth of the gospel. And for the expansion of the church. And the kingdom of God. Them being able to hold up faithful. Under that kind of persecution. If it was that severe already. You would think he would point to it. And say listen. Look at what happened there. Okay. Let me give you some encouragement on the back side of that. So it seems to be somewhere in between 64 and 70 A.D. Okay, number two then. Number two. 
So we're almost there, and this will be the last point. I have more, but I'll save that for next week. Who are the recipients of the letter? So introduction, number one, who wrote the letter, and what was the, what was the time of the letter? And now thirdly, who are the recipients? Now he says, to those who are elect exiles... Some some English translations might have the word alien there. We're talking about exiles. We're talking about strangers. We're talking about people that are in a foreign place. They're living there. They're, they're, they're kind of camped out there for a while, for a season. But that's not their home. That's what this is talking about. He says, to those who are elect exiles. And the word elect means chosen. We'll talk about that later. That's the reason we're going to spend about four sermons right here in these two verses, by the way. Those who are elect exiles, strangers, of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. So in those, how many is that? One, two, three, four, five different locations there, which is today modern day Turkey area. So it's the provinces of Asia Minor, modern Turkey today at the time. He's writing to the dispersion. Dispersion. So let's talk about that for just a minute. There are two other New Testament texts that use that word. It's a Greek word that we get that dispersion in the, in the English from. And it's a technical term referring to the dispersing of the Jews throughout the world by the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. So there's this dispersion of Jewish people among all the other nations of the world, even from Old Testament times. And over the years, a lot of them would be coming back to Jerusalem, their homeland, and some of them would stay and remain spread out among the other nations. But there's two other times in the New Testament when this word is used. And I'll give you both of them. John 7, 35. In James 1, 1. So let's look at them. John 7, 35. Let's look at them just briefly. 7, 35. 35. The Jews said to one another. So this is the Jewish people talking to one, to one another. Where does this man, Jesus, intend to go that we will not find him? So they're asking a question. Jesus says that he's going to go and you will not be able to find me. Does he intend to go to the dispersion? Among the Greeks and teach the Greeks. So there in that word, that's the same word he says. Or is he going to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Turn over to the book of James. James chapter 1. James is right before First Peter. So James chapter 1 and verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Twelve tribes. That ring a bell? Twelve tribes of Israel? The twelve tribes that make up the nation of Israel. So, in those two times, there is a difference between them and the way that 1 Peter writes. Both of those times, there is a definite article in the Greek alongside that word. And what does that mean? That means that it's like us saying the dispersion, right? The dispersion, not a dispersion or some dispersion, but the dispersion. 
So the difference is that when the apostle Peter uses that term to talk about those elect exiles that are scattered abroad in what we would consider modern day Turkey, he is writing to them who are dispersed as Christians among those different cities and towns. So by not including the definite article, we are making an interpretation here that says this is not referring to specific Jews that are scattered, but to Jews and Gentile Christians that are scattered throughout that region that he mentions there in those specific cities. So as one writer says, it is best to interpret the term as a non-technical reference to believers widely distributed geographically. Okay. Now, why is that important? The reason that that's important is because if he was writing very specifically to only Jewish believers, then the way that we interpret and apply that, this text would be a little different as a result of that. You understand? So if I'm writing specifically to, just say I'm writing specifically to three of you, then it wouldn't be intended for everybody in the room to obey everything that I said to the three. See, so that interpretation comes into a little bit of a practical application help as we continue on. Now, let me give you a couple reasons why I believe this. Of course, first of all, there's no definite article. Okay. Second, look at chapter 2, verse 11. First Peter chapter 2, verse 11. He identifies his readers here not racially, or nationally, but really spiritually. In First Peter chapter 2, verse 11, he identifies them as beloved. I urge you as sojourners, here's where I get the title, and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So he's not only in this letter addressing Jews that are Christians, but those Christians generally that are dispersed from their native lands and are exiles and strangers because of their unity to Christ, because they are in Christ, they are spiritually exiled and strangers in this world. And we'll talk about that just a little bit more as we go forward, thinking about the way to hear this. And I'm going to say just couple more remarks here in closing about this. I ask myself, what would be the difference? If you've read through this, I've read through this, you know, read through it from start to finish. I almost did it with you today. They stood up. This was a circular letter going throughout that region. You can look at it on a map. You can see Galatia. Some of those cities are, are mentioned in the region of Galatia that we just talked about, where those Gentiles were being bombarded because they were having these false... Jewish legalists coming and preaching the false doctrine. So when he writes to them, I ask myself this question. You know, when you read through this from start to finish, First Peter, the field of it is not to ethnic Jews that are believers that are scattered out because of the persecution. I think they're included in this. I, they are definitely included in the dispersion that he's talking about. But when he's writing here and you hear and you're going to next week, we'll do a little bit more of this survey work and we're going to hear 
that he's calling on Christians that are being persecuted and Christians that are, that are not at home in this world anymore. They're strangers and they're exiles in the world. They're living in a place that they have to work and they have to function and they have homes and they have jobs and they have children to raise and they have parents to care for and they're living their lives there. And he's going to give massive theological and practical instruction to these people to trust in God, to remain faithful and steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, to borrow some of Paul's language. He's going to encourage them as strangers and exiles in the world, and he's going to help them and by virtue then help us to know how to live because we're just like them, living in a world that is truly not our home. Living in a culture that is not like the culture of heaven. It's not going to be like this in the millennial kingdom. It's not going to be like this in the eternal state. It's going to be so vastly different. But we have to live here now. You have to get up and go to work tomorrow morning. You have uh, family members that you are concerned about that are sickly. You have bills to pay. and, And as I said, children to raise, lives to live. And as Christians, how do we do it? How do we go about it? That's what this book is about. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time in your word and with your people. We are praying that you will take the truths of this book and apply them. Help us to apply them appropriately in our lives. Help us to hear this book as, as it is an authoritative word from you, our God, through the apostle that you appointed. Help us, Lord, to hear it from a man who had feet of clay that we will learn from in his own example as one of the under-shepherds that you have given to your church so many years ago. Help us to hear these words and help us to appropriately apply these words in our own lives for your glory and for our good and for the good of this church and for the good of future generations. We ask by faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.